14, is found among the English-speaking people of America, Australia and South Africa. Their spatial ideas are built on a big scale. Distances do not daunt them. The man who could conceive a Cape to Cairo Railroad, with all the schemes of territorial aggrandizement therein implied, had a mind that took continents for its units of measure, and he found a fitting monument in a province of imperial proportions whereon was inscribed his name. Bryce tells us that in South Africa the social circle of the best people includes Pretoria, Johannesburg, Kimberley, Bloemfontein and Cape Town a social circle with a diameter of a thousand miles. The spirit of our western frontier, so long as there was a frontier, was the spirit of movement, of the conquest of space. It found its expression in the history of the Wilderness Road and the Oregon Trail, when the center of population in the United States still lingered on the shore of Chesapeake Bay, and the frontier of continuous settlement had not advanced beyond the present western boundary of Virginia and Pennsylvania. The spacious mind of Thomas Jefferson foresaw the Mississippi Valley as the inevitable and necessary possession of the American people, and looked upon the trade of the far-off Columbia River as a natural feeder of the Mississippi commerce. Emerson's statement that the vast size of the United States is reflected in the big views of its people applies not only to political policy, which in the Monroe Doctrine for the first time in history has embraced a hemisphere, nor is it confined to the big scale of their economic processes. Emerson had in mind rather their whole conception of national mission and national life, especially their legislation, for which he anticipated larger and more Catholic aims than obtain in Europe hampered as it is by countless political and linguistic boundaries and barred thereby from any far-reaching unity of purpose and action. Canada, British South Africa, Australia and the United States, though widely separated, have in common a certain wide outlook upon life, a continental element in the national mind, bred in their people by their generous territories. The American recognizes his kinship of mind with these colonial Englishmen as something over and above mere kinship of race. It consists in their deep-seated common democracy, the democracy born in men who till fields and clear forests, not as plowmen and woodcutters, but as makers of nations. It consists in identical interests and points of view in regard to identical problems growing out of the occupation and development of new and almost boundless territories, race questions, paucity of labor, highways and railroads, immigration, combinations of capital, excessive land holdings and illegal appropriation of land on a large scale, are problems that meet them all. The monopolistic policy of the United States in regard to American soil as embodied in the Monroe Doctrine, and the expectation lurking in the mental background of every American that his country may eventually embrace the northern continent, find their echo in Australia's plans for wider empire in the Pacific. The Commonwealth of Australia has succeeded in getting into its own hands the administration of British New Guinea 90.500 square miles. It has also secured from the imperial government the unusual privilege of settling the relations between itself and the islands of the Pacific, because it regards the Pacific question as the one question of foreign policy in which its interests are profoundly involved, in the same way the British in South Africa, sparsely scattered though they are, feel an imperative need of further expansion. If their far-reaching schemes of commerce and empire are to be realized, the effort to annihilate space by improved means of communication has absorbed the best intellects and energies of expanding peoples. The ancient Roman, like the Incas of Peru, built highways over every part of the empire, and daunted by natural obstacles like the Alps and Andes. Modern expansionists are railroad builders. Witness the long list of strategic lines, 
constructed or subsidized by various governments during the past half century the Union Pacific, Central Pacific, Canadian Pacific, Trans-Siberian, Khartoum, Cape Town Zambezi, and now the proposed Trans-Saharan Road, designed to unite the Mediterranean and Guinea colonies of French Africa, the equipment of the American roads, with their heavy rails, giant locomotives, and enormous freight cars, reveals adaptation to a commerce that covers long distances between strongly differentiated areas of production, and that reflects the vast enterprises of this continental country. The same story comes out in the ocean vessels which serve the trade of the Great Lakes, and in the acres of coal barges in a single fleet which are towed down the Ohio and Mississippi by one mammoth steel tug. The abundant natural resources awaiting development in such big new countries give to the mind of the people an essentially practical bent. The rewards of labor are so great that the stimulus to effort is irresistible. Economic questions take precedence of all others, divide political parties, and consume a large portion of national legislation, while purely political questions sink into the background. Civilization takes on a material stamp, becomes that dollar civilization which is the scorn of the placid paralyzed Oriental or the old world European. The genius of colonials is essentially practical. Impatience of obstacles. Shortcuts aiming at quick returns. Wastefulness of land, of forests, of fuel, of everything but labor, have long characterized American activities. The problem of an inadequate labor supply attended the sudden accession of territory opened for European occupation by the discovery of America, and caused a sudden recrudescence of slavery which as an industrial system had long been outgrown by Europe. It has also given immense stimulus to invention, and to the formation of labor unions, which in the newest colonial fields, like Australia and New Zealand, have dominated the government and given a utopian stamp to a legislation. Yet underlying and permeating this materialism is a youthful idealism, transplanted to conditions of greater opportunity. The race becomes rejuvenated, abandons outgrown customs and outworn standards, experiences an enlargement of vision and of hope, gathers courage and energy equal to its task, manages somehow to hitch its wagon to a star, chapter vii geographical boundaries nature and horse fixed boundary lines and sudden transitions, all her forces combine against them, everywhere she keeps her borders melting, wavering, advancing, retreating, if by some cataclysm sharp lines of demarcation are drawn, she straightway begins to blur them by creating intermediate forms, and thus establishes the boundary zone which characterizes the inanimate and animate world, a stratum of limestone or sandstone, when brought into contact with a glowing mass of igneous rock, undergoes various changes due to the penetrating heat of the volcanic outflow, so that its surface is metamorphosed as far as that heat reaches, the granite cliff slowly deposits at its base a rock waste slope to soften the sudden transition from its perpendicular surface to the level plain at its feet. The line where a land-borne river meets the sea tends to become a sandbar or a delta, created by the river-borne silt and the wash of the waves, a form intermediate between land and sea, bearing the stamp of each, fluid in its outlines, ever growing by the persistent accumulation of mud, though ever subject to inundation and destruction by the waters which made it. The alluvial coastal hems that edge all shallow seas are such border zones, reflecting in their flat, low surfaces the dead level of the ocean in their composition the solid substance of the land, but in the miniature waves imprinted on the sands and the billows of heaped-up boulders, the master workman of the deep leaves his mark. See map page 243. Under examination, 
Even our familiar term coastline proves to be only an abstraction with no corresponding reality in nature. Everywhere, whether on margin of lake or gulf, the actual phenomenon is a coast zone, alternately covered and abandoned by the waters, varying in width from a few inches to a few miles. According to the slope of the land, the range of the tide and the direction of the wind, it has one breadth at the minimum or neap tide, but increases often two or threefold at spring tide. When the distance between ebb and flood is at its maximum, at the mouth of Cook's Inlet on the southern Alaskan coast, where the range of tides is only 8 feet, the zone is comparatively narrow, but widens rapidly towards the head of the inlet, where the tide rises 23 feet above the ebb line, and even to 65 feet under the influence of a heavy southwest storm. On flat coasts we are familiar with the wide frontier of salt marshes, that witness the border warfare of land and sea alternate invasion and retreat. In low-short estuaries like those of northern Brittany and northwestern Alaska, this amphibian girdle of the land expands to a width of four miles, while on precipitous coasts of tideless sea basins it contracts to a few inches. Hence this boundary zone changes with every impulse of the mobile sea and with every varying configuration of the shore. Movement and external conditions are the factors in its creation. They make something that is only partially akin to the two contiguous forms. Here on their outer margins land and ocean compromise their physical differences, and this by a law which runs through animate and inanimate nature, wherever one body moves in constant contact with another, it is subjected to modifying influences which differentiate its periphery from its interior, lend it a transitional character, make of it a penumbra between light and shadow, the modifying process goes on persistently with varying force, and creates a shifting, changing borders on which, from its nature, cannot be delimited. For convenience sake, we adopt the abstraction of a boundary line, but the reality behind this abstraction is the important thing in anthropogeography. All so-called boundary lines with which geography has to do have the same character. Coastlines, river margins, ice or snow lines, limits of vegetation, boundaries of races or religions or civilizations, frontiers of states, they are all the same, stamped by the eternal flux of nature. Beyond the solid ice pack which surrounds the North Pole is a wide girdle with almost unbroken drift ice, and beyond this is an irregular concentric zone of scattered icebergs which varies in breadth with season, wind and local current, a persistent decrease in continuity from solid pack to open sea. The line of perpetual snow on high mountains advances or retreats from season to season. From year to year, it drops low on chilly northern slopes and recedes to higher altitudes on a southern exposure sends down long icy tongues in dark gorges, and leaves outlying patches of old snow in shaded spots or beneath a covering of rock waste far below the margin of the snow fields. In the struggle for existence in the vegetable world, the tree line pushes as far up the mountain as conditions of climate and soil will permit. Then comes a season of fiercer storms, intenser cold and invading ice upon the peaks. Havoc is wrought, and the forest drops back across a zone of border warfare for war belongs to borders leaving behind it here and there a dwarf pine or gnarled and twisted juniper which has survived the onslaught of the enemy. Now these are stragglers in the retreat, but are destined later in milder years to serve as outposts in the advance of the forest to recover its lost ground. Here we had a border scene which is typical in nature the belt of unbroken forest, growing thinner and more stunted toward its upper edge, succeeded by a zone of scattered trees which may form a cluster perhaps in some sheltered gulch where soil has collected and north winds are excluded, and higher still the whitened skeleton of a tree to show how far the forest once invaded the domain of the waste.
the habitable area of the earth everywhere shows its boundaries to be peripheral zones of varying width, now occupied and now deserted, protruding or receding according to external conditions of climate and soil, and subject to seasonal change. The distribution of human life becomes sparser from the temperate regions toward the Arctic Circle, foreshadowing the unpeopled wastes of the ice fields beyond. The outward movement from the tropics poleward halts where life conditions disappear, and there finds its boundary, but as life conditions advance or retreat with the seasons, so does that boundary. On the west coast of Greenland the Eskimo village of Atoll, at about the 78th parallel, marks the northern limit of permanent or winter settlement, but in summer the Eskimo, in his kayak, follows the muskox and seal much farther north and there leaves his igloo to testify to the wide range of his poleward migration. Numerous relics of the Eskimo and their summer encampments have been found along Lady Franklin Bay in northern Grinnell Land 81 degrees 50 nl but in the interior, on the outlet streams of Lake Hazen, explorers have discovered remains of habitations which had evidently, in previous ages, been permanently occupied. The Merman coast of the Kola Peninsula has in summer a large population of Russian fishermen and 40 or more fishing stations, but when the catch is over at the end of August, and the Arctic winter approaches, the stations are closed, and the 3,000 fishermen return to their permanent homes on the shores of the White Sea. Farther east along this polar fringe of Russia, the little village of Charborova, located on the Jagger Strait, is inhabited in summer by a number of Samoyas, who pasture their reindeer over on Vagats Island, and by some Russians and Finns, who come from the White Sea towns to trade with the Samoyas and incidentally to hunt and fish. But in the fall, when a new ice bridge across the strait releases the reindeer from their enclosed pasture on the island, the Samoyas withdraw southward, and the merchants with their wares to Archangel and other points. This has gone on for centuries. On the Briokhov Islands at the head of the Yenisei estuary Nordenskiold found a small group of houses which formed a summer fishing post in 1875, but which was deserted by the end of August. An altitude of about 5,000 feet marks the limit of village life in the Alps, but during the three warm months of the year, the summer pastures at 8,000 feet or more are alive with herds and their keepers. The boundary line of human life moves up the mountains in the wake of spring and later hurries down again before the advance of winter. The Himalayan and Karakoram ranges show whole villages of temporary occupation, like the summer trading town of Gardok at 15.000 feet on the caravan route from Leitul Hassa, or Shadabula 3.285 meters or 10.925 feet on the road between Leh and Yarkand, but the boundary of permanent habitation lies several thousand feet below. Comparable to these are the big hotels that serve summer stagecoach travel over the Alps and Rockies but which are deserted when the first snow closes the passes. Here a zone of altitude, as in the polar regions a zone of latitude, marks the limits of the habitable area. The distribution of animals and races shows the limit of their movements or expansion. Any boundary defining the limits of such movements cannot from its nature be fixed, and hence cannot be a line. It is always a zone. Yet, Wallace's line, dividing the Oriental from the Australian zoological realm, and running through Macassar Strait southward between Bali and Lombok, is a generally accepted dictum. The details of Wallace's investigation, however, reveal the fact that this boundary is not a line, but a zone of considerable and variable width, enclosing the line on either side with a marginal belt of mixed character. Though Celebes, lying to the east of Macassar Strait, is included in the Australian realm, it has lost so large a proportion of Australian types of animals. 
and contains so many Oriental types from the West, that Wallace finds it almost impossible to decide on which side of the line it belongs. The Oriental mixture extends yet farther east over the Moluccas and Timor. Birds of Javan or Oriental origin, to the extent of 30 genera, have spread eastward well across Wallace's line, some of these stop short at Flores, and some reach even to Timor, while Australian cockatoos, in turn, have been seen on the west coast of Bali but not in Java. Halprin avoids the unscientific term line, because he finds his zoological realms divided by transition regions, which are intermediate in animal types as they are in geographical location. Wallace notes a similar, debatable land, in the Rajputana desert east of the Indus, which is the border district between the Oriental and Ethiopian realms. Such boundaries mark the limits of that movement which is common to all animate things. Every living form spreads until it meets natural conditions in which it can no longer survive, or until it is checked by the opposing expansion of some competing form. If there is a change either in the life conditions or in the strength of the competing forms, the boundary shifts. In the propitious climate of the genial period, plants and animals live nearer to the North Pole than at present, then they fell back before the advance of the ice sheet. The restless surface of the ocean denies to man a dwelling place, every century. However, the Dutch are pushing forward their northern boundary by reclamation of land from the sea, but repeatedly they have had to drop back for a time when the water has again overwhelmed their handmade territory. The boundaries of race and state which are subjected to greatest fluctuations are those determined by the resistance of other peoples. The westward sweep of the Slavs prior to 8th century carried them beyond the Elbe into contact with the Germans, but as these increased in numbers, outgrew their narrow territories and inaugurated a counter-movement eastward, the Slavs began falling back to the Oder, to the Vistula, and finally to the Neman. Though the Mohawk Valley opened an easy avenue of expansion westward for the early colonists of New York, the advance of settlements up this valley for several decades went on at only a snail's pace, because of the compact body of Iroquois tribes holding this territory. In the unoccupied land farther south between the Cumberland and Ohio rivers the frontier went forward with leaps and bounds, pushed on by the expanding power of the young republic. See map page 156. Anything which increases the expanding force of a people the establishment of a more satisfactory government by which the national consciousness is developed, as in the American and French revolutions, the prosecution of a successful war by which popular energies are released from an old restraint, mere increase of population, or an impulse communicated by some hostile and irresistible force behind all are registered in an advance of the boundary of the people in question and a corresponding retrusion of their neighbor's frontier. The border district is the periphery of the growing or declining race or state. It runs the more irregularly. The greater are the variations in the external conditions as represented by climate, soil, barriers, and natural openings, according as these facilitate or obstruct advance, when it is contiguous with the border of another state or race. The two form a zone in which ascendancy from one side or the other is being established. The boundary fluctuates for equilibrium of the contending forces is established rarely and for only short periods. The more aggressive people throws out across this debatable zone, along the lines of least resistance or greatest attraction, long streamers of occupation, so that the frontier takes on the form of a fringe of settlement, whose interstices are occupied by a corresponding fringe of the displaced people. Such was its aspect in early colonial America, where population spread up every fertile river valley across a zone of Indian land, and such it is in northern Russia today. 
where long narrow Slav bands run out from the area of continuous Slav settlement across a wide belt of Mongoloa territory to the shores of the White Sea and Arctic Ocean. See maps pages 103 and 225. The border zone is further broadened by the formation of ethnic islands beyond the baseline of continuous settlement, which then advances more or less rapidly, if expansion is unchecked, till it coalesces with these outposts, just as the forest line on the mountains may reach, under advantageous conditions, its farthest outlying tree. Such ethnic peninsulas and islands we see in the early western frontiers of the United States from 1790 to 1840, when that frontier was daily moving westward. See map page 156. The breadth of the frontier zone is indicative of the activity of growth on the one side and the corresponding decline on the other, because extensive encroachment in the same degree disintegrates the territory of the neighbor at whose cost such encroachment is made. A straight, narrow race boundary, especially if it is nearly coincident with a political boundary, points to an equilibrium of forces which means, for the time being at least, a cessation of growth. Such boundaries are found in old, thickly populated countries, while the wide, ragged border zone belongs to new, and especially to colonial peoples, in the oldest and most densely populated seats of the Germans, where they are found in the Rhine Valley. The boundaries of race and empire are straight and simple, but the younger, eastern border, which for centuries has been steadily advancing at the cost of the unequally matched Slavs, has the ragged outline and sparse population of a true colonial frontier, between two peoples who have had a long period of growth behind them. The oscillations of the boundary decrease in amplitude, as it were, and finally approach a state of rest. Each people tends to fill out its area evenly, every advance in civilization, every increase of population, increases the stability of their tenure, and hence the equilibrium of the pressure upon the boundary. Therefore, in such countries, racial, Linguistic and cultural boundaries tend to become simpler and straighter, the growth is more apparent, or, in other words, the border zone is widest and most irregular, where a superior people intrudes upon the territory of an interior race. Such was the broad zone of thinly scattered farms and villages amid a prevailing wilderness and hostile Indian tribes which, in 1810 and 1820, surrounded our Trans-Allegheny area of continuous settlement in a 1-200 mile wide girdle. Such has been the wide, mobile frontier of the Russian advance in Siberia and until recently in Manchuria, which aimed to include within a dotted line of widely separated railway guard stations, Cossack barracks, and penal colonies, the vast territory which later generations were fully to occupy. Similar, too, is the frontier of the Dutch and English settlements in South Africa, which has been pushed forward into the Kafra country a broad belt of scattered cattle ranches and isolated mining hives dropped down amid coffer hunting and grazing lands. Broader still was that shadowy belt of American occupation which for four decades immediately succeeding the purchase of Louisiana stretched in the form of isolated fur stations, lonely trappers' camps, and shifting traders' rendezvous from the Mississippi to the western slope of the Rockies and the northern watershed of the Missouri, where it met the corresponding nebulous outskirts of the faraway Canadian state on the St. Lawrence River. The same process with the same geographical character has been going on in the Sahara, as the French since 1890 have been expanding southward from the foot of the Atlas Mountains in Algeria toward Timbuktu at the cost of the nomad Tuaregs. Territory is first subdued and administered by the military till it is fully pacified, then it is handed over to the civil government, hence the advancing frontier consists of a military zone of administration, with a civil zone behind it. 
and a weaker wavering zone of exploration and scout work before it. Lord Curzon in his Ronin's lecture describes the northwest frontier of India as just such a three-ply border. The untouched resources of such new countries tempt to the widespread superficial exploitation, which finds its geographical expression in a broad, dilating frontier. Here the man dust which is to form the future political planet is thinly disseminated, swept outward by a centrifugal force. Furthermore, the absence of natural barriers which might block this movement, the presence of open plains and river highways to facilitate it, and the predominance of harsh conditions of climate or soil rendering necessary a savage, extensive exploitation of the slender resources, often combine still further to widen the frontier zone. This was the case in French Canada until recent decades in Siberia, where intense cold and abundant river highways stimulated the fur trade to the practical exclusion of all other activities, and substituted for the closely grouped, sedentary farmers with their growing families the wide-ranging trader with his Indian or Tungu's wife and his half-breed offspring. Under harsh climatic conditions, the fur trade alone afforded those large profits which every infant colony must command in order to survive and the fur trade meant a wide frontier zone of scattered posts amid a prevailing wilderness. The French in particular, by the possession of the St. Lawrence and Mississippi rivers, the greatest systems in America, were lured into the danger of excessive expansion, attenuated their ethnic element, and failed to erase the economic status of their wide border district, which could therefore offer only slight resistance to the spread of solid English settlement. Yet more recently, the chief weakness of the Russians in Siberia and Manchuria apart from the corruption of the national government was the weakness of a too remote and too sparsely populated frontier, and of a people whose inner development had not kept pace with their rate of expansion. Wasteful exploitation of a big territory is easier than the economical development of a small district. This is one line of least resistance which civilized man as well as savage instinctively follows and which explains the tendency toward excessive expansion characteristic of all primitive and nascent peoples. For such peoples natural barriers which set bounds to this expansion are of vastly greater importance than they are for mature or fully developed peoples. The reason is this, the boundary is only the expression of the outward movement or growth, which is nourished from the same stock of race energy as is the inner development, either carried to an excess weakens or retards the other. If population begins to press upon the limits of subsistence, the acquisition of a new bit of territory obviates the necessity of applying more work and more intelligence to the old area. To make it yield subsistence for the growing number of mouths, the stimulus to adopt better economic methods is lost. Therefore, natural boundaries drawn by mountain, sea and desert, serving as barriers to the easy appropriation of new territory have for such peoples a far deeper significance than the mere determination of their political frontiers by physical features, or the benefit of protection. The land with the most effective geographical boundaries is a naturally defined region like Korea, Japan, China, Egypt, Italy, Spain, France or Great Britain a land characterized not only by exclusion from without through its encircling barriers, but also by the inclusion within itself of a certain compact group of geographic conditions to whose combined influences the inhabitants are subjected and from which they cannot readily escape. This aspect is far more important than the mere protection which such boundaries afford. They are not absolutely necessary for the development of a people, but they give it an early start, accelerate the process, and bring the people to an early maturity. They stimulate the exploitation of all the local geographic advantages and resources, the formation of a vivid tribal or national consciousness and purpose 
and concentrate the national energies when the people is ready to overleap the old barriers. The early development of island and peninsula peoples and their attainment of a finished ethnic and political character are commonplaces of history. The stories of Egypt, Crete and Greece, of Great Britain and Japan, illustrate the stimulus to maturity which emanates from such confining boundaries. The wall of the Appalachians narrowed the westward horizon of the early English colonies in America, guarded them against the excessive expansion which was undermining the French dominion in the interior of the continent, set a most wholesome limit to their aims, and thereby intensified their utilization of the narrow land between mountains and sea. France, with its limits of growth indicated by the Mediterranean, Pyrenees, Atlantic, Channel, Vosges, Jura and Western Alps, found its period of adolescence shortened and, like Great Britain, early reached its maturity. Nature itself set the goal of its territorial expansion, and by crystallizing the political ideal of the people, made that goal easier to reach. Just as the dream of United Italy, realized in 1870 had been prefigured in contours drawn by Alpine Range and Mediterranean shoreline, the area which a race or people occupies is the resultant of the expansive force within and the obstacles without either physical or human, insurmountable physical obstacles are met where all life conditions disappear, as on the borders of the habitable world, where man is barred from the unpeopled wastes of polar ice fields and in sustaining oceans, the frozen rim of arctic lands, the coastline of the continents, the outermost arable strip on the confines of the desert, the barren or ice-capped ridge of high mountain range, are all such natural boundaries which set more or less effective limits to the movement of peoples and the territorial growth of states. The sea is the only absolute boundary, because it alone blocks the continuous and broken expansion of a people. When the Saxons of the lower Elba spread to the island of Britain, a zone of unpeopled sea separated their new settlements from their native villages on the mainland. Even the most pronounced land barriers, like the Himalayas and Hindukush, had their passwallies and favored spots for short summer habitation, where the people from the opposite slopes meet and mingle for a season. Sandy wastes are hospitable at times, when the spring rain, 